Hi, everybody, and welcome to the weekly message for The Table, a church in Davenport, Iowa, where people are moving from greed toward generosity, from violence toward peacemaking, from isolation toward neighborliness, and from fear toward faith. I'm Pastor Rob Leverage, and it is good to be with you on this beautiful Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of Holy Week, and on Palm Sunday, we commemorate the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem in a grand processional. He's surrounded by a great crowd of people and they're laying their cloaks in the road and they're waving palms in the air and they're singing Hosanna. And this is the beginning of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus's life on earth before he is arrested and crucified. So on Thursday of this coming week, we celebrate the Last Supper and a a ritual of Jesus washing his disciples' feet uh, the last time he, he had a meal with his friends on earth. And then on Friday, well, af- on Thursday night after all of that happens, Jesus is arrested and he's put on trial and then he is sentenced to death. On Friday, he is killed on, he is crucified and, and dies on the cross. On Saturday, it's the day of rest and of course, a day of sorrow. And then Sunday, uh, the miracle of Easter and the, the resurrection is discovered. So this is the span of Holy Week and we enter into this uh, sacred week by reading this story from the Gospel of Luke. We're gonna be in chapter 19. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed, and they found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept throwing their cloaks on the road. Now, as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground and you you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Palm Sunday is a celebration. It is our remembrance of this moment of glory, laud, and honor, as the classic hymn describes it. Um, In your Bible, if you're reading along, if you have one of those Bibles that has headings above the different passages, um, there may be a heading over this passage that says, 
Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There's crowds cheering, there's singing, chanting, cloaks thrown on the road, palms waving in the air. It's a beautiful image. This story has the juice. Friends, I, I don't know what my favorite part of this one is, um, but I, I love the story. Um, the disciples are sent into a nearby town. They're not sent into Jerusalem. They're sent into either Bethany or Bethphage to find a cult for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. And the message is, don't worry, it'll be there. You know, there's this idea in the life of faith that we will find the things that we need. Um, at, at times, it's hard to remember this. Sometimes it's time, hard for me to really believe it. But I have seen uh, many times in my life, and I've had so many people share with me their stories about the time that the thing that was needed appeared, and it made the difference. That's not to say that life is not still full of problems. Of course it is. Life is very hard, and everybody knows pain. Everyone who lives struggles. But there are also critical moments when the thing that you need happens to be there inexplicably, right? This past week, I was feeling um, very discouraged. <laughs> A lot of stuff was going on, whatever. I was down. I was feeling really depressed, actually. But I was... Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, somebody who is really very dear to me, but I haven't not spoken to her in years and um, a really long time. And she just called because she was thinking about me and she, she cares about me. She wanted to know um, how I was doing. The thing is, I missed the call. And then I called her back and I missed her. So we have not actually spoken yet, but the message that she left on my phone in that moment when I needed it it made a big difference for me. It was, a, it was very helpful to me in that moment to get that call, right? Sometimes the things, thing that you need is there. It just appears for you. The cult was there. It's a small thing, but an important thing that Jesus needed, it was there for him when he needed it, right? Of course, the cult itself is symbolic, or many people point out it's like a fulfillment of a prophetic paradigm. There's a reference in the book of Zechariah. If you want to look it up, it's in chapter 9 of Zechariah, the prophet. Um, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, I believe. And there's this description of a triumphant king who one day is going to enter the holy city of Jerusalem. But he's not going to enter with bombast and grandiosity. Um, no, he's going to enter the city, the holy city. He's going to enter it humbly, riding on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And when Jesus processes toward Jerusalem in this way, celebrated by all kinds of people who are themselves mostly poor and humble, right? He's actually creating a very stark contrast with another parade, another processional that was happening around that same time in the same city. It might have actually been happening on the very same day. Okay, so this was taking place uh, for the week of Passover. Um, Passover is a time when all Jewish people everywhere commemorate this story of God delivering God's people from bondage. And wouldn't you know, just thinking about that theme, around this time of year, there would always be energy building up in Jerusalem in particular amongst Jewish people who were sick and tired of their country being an occupied territory in the Roman Empire. 
right? It was at this time of year, as everybody is dwelling on these themes of liberation, that actually armed uprising and revolt was more likely to begin. So there had gotten to be kind of a tradition um, where there would be a military processional at which the governor, the Roman governor, who in this story is Pontius Pilate, would enter the city with grandiosity in a, in, a, in a large display of military power. And there would be banners and soldiers and chariots and armor and swords and spears and all the kind of indicators, all this, this vis visual uh, you know, presentation meant to impress people and also to tell people, don't get any ideas about insurrection. Okay, so the Romans typically would process into the city. Uh, Pontius Pilate would come into town on the west side of the town, opposite from where Jesus came in, riding the colt in from the northeast. Okay, so Jesus' processional into Jerusalem, and the way this story plays out, it was actually a rebuke. And some would even say it was like a kind of mockery of Pontius Pilate's annual parade, right? It's, and it, it's a really big deal that the people around Jesus were singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The message is very clear when you think about the context that the military conqueror who comes into town wielding swords and shields, right? The, the, the conqueror who dominates the city with violence, and that person is not actually blessed, is not actually the great one. In contrast, the great one is the penniless teacher who heals the sick and feeds the hungry and rides into town on a donkey. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, amidst this multitude of disciples, there are some Pharisees who speak up and they try to intervene and they tell Jesus in the midst of all this hubbub, you know, that he needs to get everybody to settle down. Now the Pharisees as a group are a very important um, set of characters in, throughout the gospel narratives. And people often assume in a simplistic way that they were kind of like Jesus' enemies because they were always um, taking issue with the things that Jesus was doing. They, they had a problem with the things that he was saying and teaching. And they were always sort of engaging in various kinds of argumentation with Jesus. So it is appropriate, I think, to call them opponents of Jesus. And Jesus often has incredibly harsh words to say about or even to the Pharisees. So it's not like they were just getting along all the time. However, uh, there's all these little indicators, especially in the Gospel of Luke, that sort of describe the Pharisees not as the enemies of Jesus, but as sparring partners in some degree. So for example, they're in the midst of this multitude of disciples. Okay? And it specifically describes a multitude of disciples singing and praising God. And within that, there's Pharisees. Okay? And there's a variety of ways in which Pharisees engage with Jesus throughout the gospel where they're present and they're just part of the conversation. They're not towing the line. <laughs> you know, they're not getting along and agreeing with everything. Right? But there's one story in particular in the gospel of Luke. It comes from chapter 13, verse uh, 31, around about there. Okay? And in that case, 
Pharisees actually come up to Jesus and they warn him that King Herod has sent people out looking for Jesus and they want to arrest him and they want to kill him. So that's an example of, a, of an episode, a moment in the story, when Pharisees are truly looking out for Jesus's safety and Jesus's well-being. And I think that that's actually what's happening here in this story on Palm Sunday as well. They're trying to intervene. They're trying to get Jesus to make people shut up, right? Because there is no way that a Jewish leader could process into Jerusalem ahead of the Passover with a crowd of people cheering for him and calling him the king and have that person not become an instant target of the Romans. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, don't, do you not understand what the situation is here in Jerusalem. You know that Pontius Pilate is just coming into town on the other side of town as well. Do you not understand this, this, this whole situation here? You're going to get yourself killed. When Jesus responds to them, he doesn't dispute what they are saying. He does not say, guys, you're overreacting. Come on, what's the big deal? There's nothing to worry about here, Pontius Pilate. He's a pussycat. Right? No, because if the Pharisees are worried about Jesus' safety, they're right. They're right. But Jesus' answer to them is, guys, I cannot put a lid on this. This is the day of the Lord, fellas. The truth is being made plain. And if these people stopped singing Hosanna, the stones would cry out. That phrase, by the way, the stones cry out, the stones will cry out. That is probably, that may be my very favorite line in the entire Bible. I love that saying, the stones will cry out. Now, what does Jesus mean or what is he, what is that about? Why does he say that? Um, people have different theories. Um, it might be a reference to the prophet Habakkuk, which is also one of my favorite biblical names. If I ever have another kid, I think I'm going to name that kid Habakkuk. Boy, girl, I don't care. Okay, so the prophet Habakkuk talked about evildoers who have built up their estates and built up their wealth and built up their houses off of violence and theft and corruption and injustice. And there's this place in Habakkuk where it says that the stones built into the walls of these houses will cry out in judgment against the evildoers. It's a kind of an amazing image, okay? The stones will cry out, right? Or maybe when Jesus says that the stones are going to cry out, he actually might be hearkening back to something else that he said earlier in the Gospel of Luke. At that time, he was frustrated um, because he was talking to some people, and it seemed like they thought that just because they were descendants of Abraham, that they were morally superior or something like that. Like, because Abraham is our ancestor, we are totally fine. And Jesus says to them in that episode, fools, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones here. So don't think you're special, okay? Well, fast forward to Palm Sunday when Jesus says, you know, you want all of these children of Abraham to be silent, right? Well, I'm telling you that if they are silent, God will raise up more children of Abraham from these stones right here and they'll shout Hosanna, okay? It's a reminder, right, that God's family is big. <laughs> We have a way of thinking, you know, you look around the room and you go, who do we have here? This is the, this is the people that there are 
in this movement or in this faith fellowship or this congregation, right? And, and this story is a reminder, no, no, there's more. There's more brothers and sisters than we know ready to hear the truth, ready to speak the truth, ready to do the work. We are not alone. The kindred of Christ are many. So, Palm Sunday, a day of bold proclamation and irrepressible praise. But what about that heading that we sometimes see uh, if we read this passage in our Bibles, right? And right before we begin uh, reading the story, there's a heading that says, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, if you have a Bible that has headings like that, you should know that's not part of the original text, okay? It's when People in English, 2,000 years later, are editing together. They want to organize the scriptures in a way that's comprehensible. And so they break it up into chunks and they put headings over it. Okay? But, but it does ask us, at least cause us to ask the question, is this a moment of triumph? You know, we, we have been led to think of it that way. Uh, but there is a part in the Gospel of Luke, a part of this story, it, that actually doesn't appear in the other Gospels. It's part of the Palm Sunday narrative, and we read it just a moment ago. And it is that as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, but before he enters the city, he pauses and he begins to weep. Yeah. Jesus weeps over the city before he enters, enters it. And through his tears, Jesus cries out saying, if you had only recognized on this day those things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Hmm. The days are coming when you will be surrounded by enemies. Calamity will descend and there will be great suffering. And these words from Jesus at this moment, they are stark, they are disturbing. It is a grievous lament, and it is in the midst of hosannas and blessings and praise. It is disorienting, yeah? So is this not a moment of triumph then? I mean, how are we to think about it? Because Jesus is saying, even as the palms are waving, right? Even as the crowds are singing, and it is this overwhelming scene, right? This multitude, even now, he is saying that people cannot see what they need to see. They don't understand what they need to understand. Here's an example that might be a little bit of a stretch, but follow with me, okay? <laughs> At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in the Christmas story, there's a part of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke in which there are shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And as they're out there in the fields, angels appear before them, the multitude of the heavenly host. And the angels proclaim, do you remember from the Christmas story? The angels proclaim goodwill to all whom God favors and peace on earth. That's what the angels proclaim to the shepherds. Okay. Now, as Jesus processes into Jerusalem, the crowds shout out, and they shout out, peace as well. But what are the specific words of the crowd relating to peace in this story? They shout, peace in heaven, right? Peace in heaven is what they say, glory in the highest heaven. So the angels, right, who live in heaven, they announced peace on earth. Right? But people 
who live on earth have a hard time imagining peace on earth, don't we? Peace must be the stuff of heaven. Jesus says through tears that there are things that make for peace. There are, but we don't see them. We don't recognize them. We don't understand. It brings another moment uh, to mind when Jesus is being crucified and he prays from the cross. He prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. How could they not know what they were doing? I don't know. They don't understand, okay? There is great sorrow in Jesus, right? In these words that he gives on the edge of the city. But there is also intimacy. Jesus knows us. He gets it about where people are in their understanding of the things of God. Jesus perceives that people do not understand, okay? They do not understand what is necessary for the redemption of the world. Do you? Do you understand what is necessary? You, as you watch the news and you see the violence and the war crimes and all kinds of things that are taking place, do you know the things that make for peace? Hmm. Or are they hidden from your eyes? I feel as though they are hidden from my eyes much of the time. Mm-hmm. I had a summer job when I was in college working with teenagers who had developmental disabilities. And I had a great relationship with this one 15-year-old uh, boy who had Down's syndrome. And we worked on a variety of things together. There was a lot of fun and games in this summer program, but there were also life skills that we focused on uh, helping these kids develop. And this 15-year-old boy um, could not tie his shoes. And after having gotten to know him, I thought that he was capable of mastering this particular skill. So he and I started to work on it, and we worked on it every single day for basically the second half of the summer. And I gotta tell you, he made real progress. He did. Um, He got the hang of the first couple of steps in the process. He made that first bunny ear, you know. (laughs) He made it like a champ. But he would lose his way after that. And still, um, little by little, he was getting there. He really was. Um, He was moving in the right direction. And then the summer came to an end. I went back to college. He went back to his high school. And I never saw him again. Um, I don't know if he ever finished learning how to tie his shoes. He was making real progress And I think that he was capable of it. And the last time I saw him, he wasn't there yet. It was hard for him. So did somebody else step in and, and keep teaching him? Did he keep trying? I believe that someday he would be able to do it. I never saw it. Okay. Jesus says... People don't recognize the things that make for peace. We don't understand. We don't know how to make peace. I think that's true. Most of the time, we don't get it. We don't know how to do it. Peace is hard. It's elusive. It's vexing. But could we? Could we? Are we capable of learning how to make peace? Is it totally beyond us? Or is it something 
that we could attain if we kept learning and we kept trying. Yeah. As we ponder that question, <laughs> Jesus does not paint a rosy picture. Reading the Gospel of Luke, uh, by the time we get to Palm Sunday, goodness gracious, Jesus has had a lot to say about just how much pettiness and greed and bad faith and hypocrisy he sees in the world. It's a grim assessment, let's just say, on many pages of the gospel. But it is also true that God does much of God's best work when the odds are long, and grace always shows up in unexpected ways. Okay, so in the stories leading up to Palm Sunday, the Gospel of Luke does describe the prevalence of malice and injustice and stupidity. But there are also these ways that goodwill and compassion arise in the midst of all the bad stuff. So for example, Jesus tells a story of a man who is attacked on the road and he is beaten brutally. And then all of these people walk by and they could have helped this guy, but they decide not to. They ignore his needs. Okay? It's a terrible story up to that point. But then one person, one more person comes along. This is a Samaritan. It is the good Samaritan. And he sees this man lying on the side of the road in need. And he decides to stop and help. And because of him, violence does not win the day. Okay? There's another story in which a rich man comes up to Jesus and, and he asks how he can inherit eternal life. He feels that he is righteous because, you know, he follows all the religious rules and he you know he does all the things that he's supposed to do and jesus says yeah good job following all those rules now all you have to do is give your money away to the poor and then you'll be in great shape and the man is like ah. <laughs> right he hangs his head in silence and he walks away because he doesn't want to share his money i mean there's all these these religious credentials that you can amass for yourself, but giving away your money, that is something totally different, right? And it's a very discouraging story. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And, and this story is so fatalistic, so discouraging. But a couple of chapters later, there is another story in which Jesus meets another rich man. This guy is named Zacchaeus. And Jesus extends that right hand of fellowship to Zacchaeus. He eats dinner at his house. And because of this, Zacchaeus has this like crazy epiphany and he decides to commit to giving all of his money away. Half of everything that he has, he's gonna give it to serve the poor, and the other half he's gonna to use to pay back everybody that he's ripped off over the years, right? So yes, I mean, this, this story, <laughs> you know, the, it's true, there is greed everywhere. Money has a corrosive and a corrupting effect on societies and on human souls. It's true. And Jesus is seeing this and speaking about it all of the time. But there are also these times when people prove that they are able 
to break free of the hold that money has on them. Okay? The gospel is honest about the condition that the world is in, right? There is brutality. There is needless suffering, right? There is uh, selfishness, right? There is greed, right? There is, there is domination. There is injustice. There is oppression, right? All these things are true. And yet it is also true that people have it within them to choose a better way, a nobler way, a more blessed way. And Jesus embodied this for us, not only in the stories of his ministry through Galilee, healing and feeding people, not only in his moral teaching, his parables, right? All of his, his wisdom stories, but in the life that he lived all the way to the end all the way to his suffering on the cross and his resurrection on Easter morning. And that is what is being emphasized and lifted up and shouted out with the hosannas of Palm Sunday. It's the fact that even in the midst of all the, the horrific facts of life, right, there is a more blessed way. There is a more holy way. There is a way to life that we are able to choose. And this is the way of the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.